Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. shouldn't shock any woman in the world, but most medical research is based on male bodies. The effects of that reach out across our societies, leaving women behind not only in medicine, but in so many other parts of our cultures. Kat Bohannon is working to change that, painting a picture of the evolutionary history of women in her stunning new book, Eve. How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Evolution. Kat is a researcher and author with a PhD from Columbia University in the evolution of narrative and cognition. Her essays and poems have appeared in Scientific American, Science Magazine, The Best American Non-Required Reading, The Georgia Review, and Poets Against the War. According to a ProPublica report, the U.S. has the highest rate of deaths related to pregnancy and childbirth in the developed world. The ProPublica project also found that half of those deaths, women and children, are preventable. It's 2020, yet somehow it still feels like our world was built with only men in mind. You can see it in the wage gap, in voice recognition software, and definitely in the fact that the Impractical Jokers got a movie. Most men die before women do in the United States. In 2021, American women lived on average uh, 79 years. However, life expectancy for American men was only about 73 years. From what I understand from doctors, that's really rare. If it's a legitimate rape, uh, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. But let's assume that maybe that didn't work or something. You know, I think there should be some punishment. Hi, I'm Kat Bohannon, and I'm trying to put the female body back in the frame. Sorry, not sorry. Kat, thank you so much for being with us. I am so very excited to talk to you. But before we dive in, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? 
Sure. My name is Kat Bohannon, and I just finished my PhD in Columbia, where I was studying the evolution of narrative and cognition, brains and stories, to put it simply, and their evolutionary history. I was especially influenced by the idea that story could help you remember stuff, but we didn't have good models for why that was. And so I wrote a bunch of computer programs, basically, to analyze how story makes brains remember things. That's the simplest way of putting it. But in this book, in Eve, uh, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution, I was really interested in putting the female body back in the frame because women's bodies are understudied and undercared for. And that's true all the way down to the tiny little creatures we use before we ever test things on human subjects, all the way back to mice, actually even fruit flies. We're not properly studying for sex differences. And that's a problem. It means we don't have good models for how our bodies actually work. Because while your liver does not have a pronoun, human gender is a very modern thing, a very human thing. Biological systems are frequently sexed, right? And so that shapes everything from your immune system to where you put fat on your body to how you digest the food you eat and everything up and down. So if you don't have good models for what sex differences are doing in the body, then you're not building good models for how we work at all. And that still affects our lives today. Was there a moment where you said, you know what, I'm going to write this book or this is going to be my life's work? What is the genesis been of your journey to get to this place? Oh, man. As a fellow uh, cisgender woman, I would say that you and I probably have many triggering moments for what choices we make in our lives. We have many moments that give us the ideas that we have. Was it when I saw the film 2001? And there were exactly zero females in the frame when we were supposedly inventing tools. Was it that moment when I was a little girl and I noticed that men saw me differently? Was it that time when I was drinking with a bunch of neurobiologists at Columbia and found out none of them were properly studying female rats? All of these moments come together, right? But I can say that 10 years ago is when I decided, okay, fine. I'll write this book. And Knopf, which is part of Random House, said, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, you write that book. And then I went down a 10-year research hole in order to write the book. And what do you think? Let's also unpack what it means for women that most of our understanding of human biology comes from men. <laughs> well, it comes from male bodies, right? So most medical research starts with rodents um, for good reason. For one thing, at the end of every experiment, you're supposed to sack your subjects. That's short for sacrifice. That means we kill the things. So we probably don't want to kill a whole bunch of human beings just to figure some shit out. That's not a good idea. Most of the knowledge that we get long before we ever get to clinical trials is happening with what's called model species. So you're figuring things out in model species, but if you're mostly studying male bodies when you're in your model species, and there are a few different reasons for that. One, it's how you control for estrus, for fluctuating hormones. In us, we call it the menstrual cycle, but all mammals have some version of their own female cycling hormone thing, which affects every part of the body over time. So if you're a scientist, you want to do clean science, you want to control for your confounds, you want to make it simple, right? If you're making it simple, then, well, one way is to just only study males. Seems weird when you put it that way, but that's pretty much what's been going down. The other reason now that we're doing genetic studies is that a female is what's having the offspring to make your genetically selected for strain, right? When you hear about a study that's, oh, in an Alzheimer's model in mouse, that's a weird phrase, right? You want to know something about Alzheimer's. 
What that means is there is a genetically specific strain of mouse who's more prone to having brains that do things that look like Alzheimer's. But the way you create those bodies to do those studies, because we're mammals and so are they, is by having a female give birth to pups. If you kill off the female, then you've lost the thing that's making the line. So that means that you can't kill off your females, which means that you probably don't want to include them in your studies either. So there are a number of different reasons. It's not like there's this sexist cabal of scientists sitting somewhere like, Mwahaha, women will have bad drugs. No, it's actually a bunch of different decisions that get made in this complex space that results in us being guinea pigs, basically, as soon as we take a drug. Why then do researchers study mostly males when developing therapies for both sexes, really leaving many high and dry? Now I'm gonna get a little bit more into this. So we know that men and women are not similar. We know this. Now here's a slide where I will tell you that there are some key differences between men and women when it comes to, for example, how they can manifest disease differently. Think of heart attack. One of the most basic things. So men have the classic chest pain with pain radiating down the arm. Women typically present in an atypical manner. Obviously, there's the scientific impact, but what about the cultural impact of this? Does it impact us culturally? Massively so. Have you ever taken a drug? like cold medicine, ibuprofen, or most especially any prescription opioid drugs, biologically female bodies radically differently process opioid drugs. What usually happens is we need a little bit more of them and they leave our system a little bit faster. That's one of the things that goes on. This is probably because our livers are sexed and thousands of different genes are expressed differently in our livers and our livers are what are processing many different kinds of drugs, right? They're metabolizing things differently. It actually affects many of our different systems in our bodies, but our livers are a big part of the story for why men and women need to think carefully about what drugs they take and when. But the main deal is that if our drugs weren't properly tested on female bodies leading up to clinical trials, and then until recently, you actually had to have a good reason to include human women in your clinical trials because we didn't want to screw up people's babies, basically. We don't know if you could be pregnant if you're between certain ages. Better just not to have you in the study at all. That means that the majority of opioid drugs on the market have either never been tested on women or haven't been properly tested for sex differences. And so that shapes the addiction pathways, right? It shapes who's going to end up getting addicted to OxyContin and when in their lives and why. It shapes how we should be modeling drug interactions, which is obviously increasingly a big deal. In other words, there isn't a moment in your life when the understudy of sex differences hasn't in some way affected you. And it affects men too, right? Because women outlive men and we don't have good models for why that is either. So how do we treat male old age? If you don't know why it is that the female body is out surviving the male body, you're throwing spaghetti at a wall, even with all of your knowledge about what's going on in male rats and male monkeys and occasionally even male humans. If you don't really know why it is that we have this advantage, because we do, that's the one bit of good news here. If we don't really know what that advantage is built on from the ground up, then we don't really know exactly what's killing them. Great. 
Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's fascinating and logical. What you're saying, even though it feels so revolutionary and groundbreaking, it also feels very, like, just real. And thank you for doing this work, because I think it is vital, especially someone who has all sorts of hormonal things going on in in my body. And speaking of that, I want to start at the beginning with the idea of childbirth. (laughs) I had a really hard time. How are humans at giving birth? Oh, we suck at this. So we have 8 billion people on the planet right now, which is not a small number, and would make you think that, oh, we're good at having babies. No, we're terrible at having babies. Human reproduction is absolute garbage. That is the technical term, right? That our pregnancies, our postpartum periods, and of course our deliveries are all longer and harder and more prone to dangerous and sometimes crippling and murdery complications than they are for almost any other primate. Almost any other mammal, in fact. We suck at this. Why? Some of them are mechanical. We're trying to squeeze a watermelon-sized thing out of a lemon-sized hole. Having done that a couple times, I can tell you that's terrible. I'm not sure about your personal experience, but let's not repeat that. That's, that was enough. Bless all the people who enjoy their births. I loved being pregnant, but the childbirth thing, I had a really hard time with both of my kids. But with Milo, I was in labor for 18 hours and I pushed for three of those and they had to take them C-section after all of that anyway. So it was just, and I was traumatized, completely and totally traumatized. Because for me, and this is something that people don't talk about, I was laying there and I was like, what is this feeling that I'm feeling right now this like? And I was like, oh, this is akin for me to the sexual trauma that I've experienced in my life. Because it is out of control. You're in a vulnerable position. You have no place that you can run. People are putting instruments inside of you and are elbow deep with their hands. Sorry, everyone, for the graphic descriptions, but this is how childbirth is. And I was like, I had flashbacks from being sexually assaulted during my childbirth. Yeah, I mean, it turns out that no part of your life happens in isolation. It's not like you can put this silo around a prior trauma and a silo around a current trauma and expect them not to bridge. Human brains don't work like that. Human bodies don't work like that. You live the life you live and it's always in conversation with memory and experience and what that body has gone through. And no brains in a vat either. It's not like your brain can sit over here and go, oh, this thing happening in my body. How interesting. Whatever. I literally tore myself apart to bring my children into the world, as do the majority of women. The majority of women literally tear themselves apart to bring children into the world. So the moment of birth itself, oh God, we try our best to forget. Almost all of us trying to forget because the majority of women are cis women. Not all. The majority of women will give birth. Not all. 
But the majority, globally, yes, the vast majority of us go through this. And it's, for many of us, just horrible. It's just horrible. It's the kind of pain that, even when it's not exactly real, makes grown men cry. Labor. We're gonna just have to do this the all-natural way. Up until this point, only women knew the agony of childbirth, which isn't too far off from this scene in Knocked Up. But now, these two Dutch TV hosts know all that screaming on the big screen isn't just an act. Giving birth really hurts. As part of a stunt, these men were hooked up to a machine with electrodes stuck to their abdomen, all to simulate labor pains. But why is it so hard for us? Is there an evolutionary reason? Yes. Now, evolution is always accident, right? So never think that something that goes down in the history of evolution means it's going to be automatically beneficial. All of the different ways that our bodies evolved aren't necessarily things that helped us. Sometimes they were just things that didn't hurt us so much, and so the body just kept running with them. And that's the kind of um, immoral quality to the deep history of our species. Yes, there's been a lot of suffering uh, with this body plan. That doesn't mean that evolution didn't select for that thing. So that aside, and we can feel whatever we feel, whether or not we are religious about all of that, but our placentas are incredibly invasive. So in a mouse, the placenta, that's where the embryo connects to the mother's body in the uterus. It's actually made out of two bodies. It's made of the mother's body, which is the basal plate, and the embryonic tissue, which is the fetal plate, it's the only organ that is made of two different organisms, effectively. Now, theirs is kind of shallow. In the mouse, it's shallow. It's like you got a little bit of a thing, but when they give birth, there isn't a lot of tearing. Not just be tearing in terms of what happened with me, with a literal, we don't talk about my pelvic area. Things were stitched up. It's cool. But in a mouse, there's no stitching, not just because the newborns are small when they come out of that birth canal, but also because it doesn't take very long for that placenta to detach. It's like, and out it goes. For ours, our placentas actually penetrate the mother's bloodstream. That means that the blood vessels that are going to the kiddo long before the umbilical cord, right? We're talking about in the placenta where the umbilical cord attaches. So all of those blood vessels are deeply intertwined with the mother's blood vessels in the uterine wall. And the reason that is such a problem and gives us so many birth complications, so many difficulties, not just at the moment of birth, but actually throughout pregnancy, is because that means it's interacting with her body in this deep way. That means it has to do more to downregulate her immune system so the body doesn't freak the hell out and say, oh God, it's a tumor, attack, 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 which may well have a lot to do with how many miscarriages human women have, right? The mother's immune system going, wait, foreign body, no, out we go. And it's also the case that when you're in the moment of birth, how that placenta detaches from the wall can cause hemorrhaging very easily. This happened with my second child, right? Because just picture blood vessels being torn. We're talking about internal bleeding that is very hard with these big blood vessels to clot up and protect mother and child. So that's actually a really big deal. Our embryos are basically, ah, I love my children, but let's call it what it is. They're blood-sucking demon fetuses, okay? They're just trying to take as much as they can out of the mother's body, and the mother's body is doing everything it can to survive. That's a better description of what human pregnancy is like. The other problem is, of course, that it's the watermelon and the lemon size hole, right? That we actually gestate such big babies compared to 
our body plan compared to our size, and our birth canal is smaller because we walk upright, our pelvis adjusted as we went from four legs up to two legs, right? So that shrunk the opening at the bottom of those pelvic bones. So that means that we have to dilate the cervix to about 10 inches, which is not fun. Takes a long time to do it. And I do this in the book too. Let me try and make it real. A chimp mom, her labor, top to bottom, takes about 40 minutes. I was in labor for about 18 hours and then the pushing after that with the active labor part, right? A first-time mom on average, that's the people that goes quickly and the very long statistically, the average, the thing in the middle, is 12 to 16 hours for a first-timer. And their postpartum recoveries in our most closely related ape, that's the chimp and the bonobo, are basically nothing. They kind of like brush themselves off, maybe take a nibble of the placenta and just knuckle walk the fuck away. I mean, they're good. That's not us at all, right? So um, obviously that's not a good model for a success story for a species, right? It was not a given at all that this sort of body plan would be where we would be going. And the only reason we got to where we're going is we started helping each other with our pregnancies and our births and intervening in any way we could in our fertility, including down-regulating our fertility, right? Trying to ovulate less is also a way to survive pregnancy because the safest thing for any human person is to not be pregnant. It's all so fascinating. You say that gynecology, the invention of and its continued existence, is the reason why we're not a curiosity at some other species zoo. What do you mean by that? So in evolutionary biology, there's such a thing as hard selection. You can also think of this as a hard problem. You can limp around on one foot, you can see with one eye, but if you're bad at making babies, your lineage is probably headed for extinction, or at least sequestering away in a weird ecological pocket until someone else finds you cute, right? We have examples of these species in the real world right now. The giant panda has largely forgotten how to have sex. Zoos trying to preserve them show them panda porn on little televisions to hope it'll get them in the mood and teach them how to do it again, and it only kind of works. Panda is one of the most endangered species on Earth. But even with our best conservation efforts and tens of millions of dollars spent over the last 50 years, they are still at risk of extinction, and humans are probably the only reason why giant pandas haven't gone extinct yet. Despite being a species of bear, pandas have one of the strangest diets in the animal kingdom. They eat bamboo, which makes up to 99% of their diet, but they don't have the ability to fully digest plant material, like herbivores do. Instead, they have a carnivore-like digestive system, with a simple stomach and a short small intestine. As a result, they have to eat up to 18 kilograms or 40 pounds of bamboo every day. Due to their nutrient-poor diet, newborn pandas are only the size of a stick of butter, They only weigh about 100 grams, less than a third the weight of other bear cubs, and the only reason they haven't gone extinct yet is probably the fact that they are cute. They also only eat certain kinds of bamboo and a lot of it. There are many reasons that the giant panda is not doing well. Almost every kind of rhinoceros also has known fertility problems, so this doesn't make them a good candidate for ecological conservation. Mostly IVF is helping. Doesn't help also that they have in the male a two and a half foot long uh, lightning bolt shaped penis and an equally complicated vagina to match on the female side. And so sex for them is just 
It's just a thing that they try not to do too much of, let's say. Also, we should stop cutting off their horns. We should just stop doing that. There's the northern hairy-nosed wombat. They are from Australia, I think, and they're just fussy. They're just like really fussy animals who just don't want to be around anyone. And we've all dated someone like that. We're just like, okay, well, that happened and we're moving on. So they don't have a lot of babies either, right? These are all examples, in other words, of species who are bad at reproduction. And none of them are doing particularly well. The more we come to understand that the human species is more like that and a lot less like rabbits, the more we'll understand the impact of gynecology. Gynecology is why we're here. And there's nobody alive on the planet today who doesn't live in a society where gynecology is at least on board a bit. Even in hunter-gatherer societies where they have nothing like our actually miraculous C-sections, our actually amazing birth control pills, just like a baseline, they have some local knowledge and they're just doing their thing, their birth rate and their maternal death rate is still better than it would be in ancient hominin ancestors because they have some kind of gynecology on board. There is wisdom passed from prior females. There are people who assist in the birth. And there are local practices, both behavioral and medicinal, that influence the female's fertility to make her more or less fertile as she desires. It reminds me of something else that you talk about which I want to get into, which is gynecology and sexism have similar evolutionary roots. How so? Let's get into that. So the two chapters here we're dealing with in the book are the tools chapter and the love chapter. So one in the middle and one at the very end. And in the love chapter, I had to kind of reckon with the implications of the tool chapter in many ways. Which means if gynecology is our most important invention, if that's one of the things that we are using as a species to overcome our inherently crap reproductive systems, there are other things that we do to control female bodies, the most obvious of which we would call sexism. Now, sexism, how I'm talking about it in the book, isn't just treating women badly. What it's really about is controlling access to women's bodies. Most cultures, today and historically, have this sort of strict set of rules about where women can be and who has access to their bodies and when they can have sex or not have sex, when they can be looked at or not, and by whom and in what context. So you have to think about sexism not simply as the ways in which people like you and I have been treated like garbage in various contexts, but also simply like in what ways have these cultural rules influenced our fertility patterns? In what ways have they influenced how we have had sex and how we have had children and in what context and what is permissible and what is not? So in that way, what I call sexism or sex rules that every culture makes, and all of these rules are a little bit different culture to culture. It's just that every culture has them. This is The other side of the coin, right? Gynecology is one behavioral way that we have created this suite of knowledge to influence our fertility patterns and to help us survive the shit show that is human reproduction. And the other side, it really is a shit show. (laughs) Sorry. Can we just call it, right? I support the natural birth movement in that I think every woman gets to decide what she wants to have happen to her body. But it's okay to also call it terrible. It's okay to also say, this is terrible. I hope you enjoy it. Basically, I tore off on the vagina where the baby comes out. A vagina straight through into the back passage. First of all, I started having problems with my bladder. 
Um, it was a constant need to go to the toilet, just a constant urge. 85% of women suffer some degree of perineal tear during their first vaginal birth. I didn't consider it to be a traumatic experience because my baby was born at the end of it. Um, but actually when you, you know, when you do think about it, it was really traumatic. The advice I was getting was this will get better and, and you will heal and that wasn't what was happening to me. For sure. And we, I think, need to be more honest about that. I think we're doing women a disservice when we're not completely honest about how horrible it is. And also that thing where, like, I support and celebrate people who are like, it was wonderful top to bottom. We can admit these people are unicorns. These are rare. Okay. People who say this was wonderful top to bottom. Oh, God, I wish that was true for everyone. I loved being pregnant. And I feel a little bit like a unicorn in that respect because I gave birth to Milo when I was 38 and Bella when I was 41, which, by the way, talk about a whole other set of evolutionary problems <laughs> because I basically was in perimenopause when I gave birth to Bella. She's like a miracle baby. So for me, I had such severe postpartum with both of my kids, and I'm sure that was because my body is like, you know what? We're not supposed to be doing this at this age. All of the hormones should be gone at this point. Like, what are you doing? And I do think that there is a correlation between the ups and downs of my hormone levels because I miscarried once before Milo and once before Bella. And so if you look at that with the miscarriages, that was like a lot of years pregnant, a lot of months pregnant. And those highs and lows, I think, were really indicative of a struggle physically and then after I gave birth mentally. But I think the question is, can we evolutionarily do away with sexism now? I think, and I'm going to come back to miscarriages because I've had many and we can talk about that if you want to. I've had six pregnancies and two live-born babies. So, you know, you do the math. Now that I know of, because of course, many women are pregnant way more times than they know of because we're just not testing. Um, because that's a thing, absolutely, too. Most miscarriages happen early on in the cycle. So if you're late, even by a week, could have been a pregnancy, it just depends. But in terms of sexism, if gynecology is helping us prepare for and manipulate and survive our human reproductive cycles, the other side of that is all of this innovative, creative, collaborative, cultural stuff that we do that also shapes all of our reproductive behaviors, many of which we could call sexism, which is strong sex rules about what gender is supposed to look like and people who are assigned a female gender and self-identify with a female gender. Now, this idea of identifying is a complicated contemporary thing, but it's still real. And, you know, so that means that now and historically, where do women get to go? What do we get to wear? Who do we get to be seen with? Who do we get to be in privacy with? Who do we get to dress one way or another with? Where do we get to speak? Where do we get? And all of that seems like this massive domineering thing that surely men have done. But if you understand that this is also influencing female reproductive success, and I mean that in that scientific sense, in that evolutionary sense, do you survive having babies and do your babies survive to have more babies? That's what success means for evolution. Sounds crap to me. I think our lives are worth more than that. But biology, there it is. So, okay, do you survive this process? Well, sexism can influence that too. Like in some cultures, it can create strong senses of forbiddenness around pedophilia. And I'm down with that. 
I don't want kids to be dealing with that. So that's a thing too. Like only at a certain age do you start having sex with females. Okay, great. In biology, that also means that her body is more ready to deal with this shit show. Because what happens to girls when they're pregnant versus adult women? Oh my God. Whoa. Terrible. Absolutely legit terrible for the rest of those children's lives, right? Long into adulthood will she suffer. So that's a good rule. That's a good sex rule. We like that rule. We like that there might be an age cutoff. We're not so down with the rule that only certain men get to decide and men are the deciders and what have you. Practice of medicine is, is much more complicated than politicians might try and make it out to be. Staff at Bonner General in Sandpoint are speaking out after the hospital announced the closure of its labor and delivery services Friday. The hospital says it's struggling to retain staff because in part of Idaho's anti-abortion laws. But the idea is if there are sexist rules that are controlling female reproductivity, that's the flip side of the coin of gynecology on that deep time scale, on that evolutionary scale. Because what we are is super social. We're a species that lives in communities. We're a species that collaborates. And so that's why I always found it really suspicious when people are like, oh, she's saying bad shit about women. That means that she's internalized sexism. I'm like, that seems simplistic. I don't know if that's it. You know what I mean? I don't know if that gives women enough credit, even if I disagree with those women. But if we're all collaborating on sexism, if we're all participating in making and reinforcing and innovating on these cultural rules, then men and women are doing it. Okay. And if men and women are doing it, then women can actually say, okay, if this isn't just internalized stuff from the guys, if this isn't just men made up the rules and I'm just signing on some kind of, I don't know, Stockholm syndrome or something. Then we can say, okay, that means we're deciders. And if women are the deciders, then we can choose differently. When we understand that we have the power to decide, that we are equal choosers here, we can't really stop caring about sex rules because sex rules are just cultural rules. And we are hardwired to care about these social rules, like I say in the book. But we can get a clear eye on things, right? We can take a step back and say, oh, if what this is for is helping women and girls survive our terrible reproductive system, well, gynecology is way better at that now. Modern gynecology is miraculous. Maybe we can more greatly support that and consciously choose to try and change these other rules. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I don't know, it just all hits home for me. It makes me think a lot and it makes me reflect a lot and it makes me more of a feminist. And I think maybe the most fascinating thing I learned from your book has to do with breastfeeding. So you talk about breastfeeding as being a conversation between a mother and a baby. 
and not in a grand spiritual metaphorical sense, but in more of a chemical way. Let's talk about that. So there's this thing, as I talk about in the book, and this is also Katie Hines' work, who used to be at H-I-N-D-E. She used to be at Harvard. Now she, I think, is at Arizona. So there is such a thing as the upsuck. Now, it is precisely what it sounds like. The mechanics of nursing, when that newborn latches onto a boob, if it does, mine was terrible at this, but for those who can, when the newborn attaches itself to a nipple and sucks on lamprey-like around the areola, right, and starts doing that sucking thing, they're actually creating a vacuum by shrinking their cheeks in there. That creates a vacuum that's literally sucking the milk out of the boob. Okay. But the thing is, is as they move their tongue back and forth to swallow and put the milk down the throat, it's actually moving the focus of the vacuum back and forth. So that means it's creating a kind of tide, a little bit like what you would see at the ocean shore, which also means there's an undertow to the tide. And that undertow is sucking the baby spit back up into your nipple. And it's sucking it up under, again, like a tide, like in that undertow, it's sucking it underneath that overflow of the milk back up into the mother's breast where many different sensors and immunological agents are essentially reading that spit like a kind of weird ancient code and changing the milk that the breast is making. So if the kid is sick, that means that the milk is going to send down both some stuff to kind of soothe the child, dampen their pain sensors. But also, importantly, it's going to send a lot of extra immunogunk to help fight off the infection. And that's going to be true for various states of the child. I do want to point out, we are doing the best we can. I prefer to think of it that way. If you get deep time, then you're going to have these adaptations that benefit. It's not like anything is perfectly designed. It's you get these all of these little changes over time that help make it better, help make it easier, help more of us survive. Now that said, the breast knows how to milk better than a child's mouth knows how to suckle because milk evolves before nipples. Okay, so this whole like upsuck and vacuum system, this is like a late add-on, right? Our base model is just making milk. This is why it is absolutely so easy to make a body lactate given the right set of hormones. This is true because I met a lactation consultant for trans women who sent me down this incredible rabbit hole of research for the milk chapter. She was wonderful. And she's like, look, trans women take the exact same hormone protocol as cisgender women when they adopt children and want to lactate and want to breastfeed. The exact same fistful of pills over time. And that shouldn't be so weird because when you think about it, we're mammals. We are hardwired to make milk. It's not that male nipples are vestigial. It's that we're just so hardwired to make milk. Men can lactate, which means they can breastfeed. But how? So everyone, regardless of gender, has breast tissue. When this tissue is exposed to hormones like progesterone and estrogen, it becomes capable of producing milk during pregnancy. But with men, this happens due to high levels of a whole different hormone called prolactin. And it's usually seen causes. Subse pella hai pituitary tumor. Pituitary gland, brain ka wo wala part hai jo prolactin banata hai, and it's tumor hone se prolactin ka production kafi barjata hai. Second is hypothyroidism. It's low thyroid hormones ki vajasi, pituitary gland ki activity barjati hai as most hormonal circuits in our body are connected. This might also lead to unwanted lactation. Psychiatric medication, opioid medication and blood pressure pills are some of the other reasons why men can lactate. But I mean in exchange for the lack of enough male contraceptives, I think the least men can do is bear the responsibility of breastfeeding children. What do you think?
we get the right hormonal systems, they're like, oh crap, it's like the Paul Revere just ringing a bell, like we better start making milk, there's a baby incoming. And it doesn't matter if you've lived a biologically female life up to that point, your body with the right hormones is gonna make milk. And they've tested the stuff biologically, it is the exact same product, the exact same thing, same ratio of fats to sugars that are only for your microbiome, to water, to it's the same stuff coming out of these bodies, which is amazing. However, a lot of kids are not good at latching. So breast pumps, very good gynecological update, gotta say. I wouldn't say that I enjoyed the process of pumping. Didn't like being a dairy cow. I still sometimes hear that noise, that ring, 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 ring. <laughs> and it's not just women who have challenging reproductive systems, though, is it? Let's just talk about penises. How are men different from other animals? Oh, yeah, God. There is a surprising amount of dong in this book. It's about the evolution of the female body. But the uh, thing about vaginas is they co-evolve with penises in species that have them. So you can't actually talk about the evolution of the vagina without at least making mention of like, oh, here's the other thing, right? So yeah, absolutely. The human penis, I can report after about 10 years of research and a bit more personal research before then is fantastically boring. We have a really boring set of penises in this species, and it's probably because um, we weren't all that rapey. If they're so boring, then why do men keep sending pictures of them to every woman they stumble upon on social media? What do they think they possess? If I had something that kept going up and down, I would be pretty fascinated by it, too. I mean, would I take pictures of my own junk? Probably. My junk normally looks the same most of the time, maybe different when you're having your period, but for the most part, there's not much variability there. So maybe it doesn't like warrant a photo as often. I don't know. I don't know. Everyone feels differently about their own bodies. Most of us are uncomfortable. I don't know why they send so many dick pics. I think they think it's going to increase their chances. Maybe they're just really proud of them. Or maybe it's just sexism and dominance in that weird way that they can like force you to look at a thing and know that you can't fully say no unless you block them. I don't know. I don't know. I've gotten a lot of penis on my phone. I don't know why that's happened. Now that we have smartphones, we have dick on our phone. Wherever you put something, there's going to be penis there. Okay, the internet is what it is. Tell people who are listening to this who think that your book has so much of a sort of scientific biological slant why everyone should read this book. Last I checked, everyone is living inside of a body, and that body is a Homo sapiens body. And that body isn't just built on the 300,000 years that we've been around, it's built on 200 million years of mammalian evolution. So people of all biological sexes, people of all gender identities are living in bodies. And the better we have a sense of where those bodies came from, the better handle we're going to get on what it's like to not just live in them, but how we can mobilize that knowledge to make these lives better and have less suffering. And finally, what gives you hope? It's hard living in a female body and having hope. It's hard living now in any body and having hope, isn't it? One of the things that does give me hope is that I've spent a lot of time now thinking about deep time. And when you do it, it does make you a little weird, right? Because you still have to go and have coffee on any given Tuesday. You still have to care about your incredibly small individual life, even though you suddenly realize how very small it is. But when you pull the camera back, when you widen the frame, 
at least in terms of the rights of women and girls and people of all genders, we're getting more egalitarian. We are. You can see that history in our bodies, actually, as we evolved through the hominin line from Lucy forward. You can see our bodies becoming effectively more egalitarian, right? Where the differences between the male and the female body continue to shrink and become less significant. When you look over the last few hundred years, all Trump aside, you can see this wonderful trajectory where we really are moving forward. So don't get distracted by the eddies. Don't get distracted by the circles and the loops and the whirlpools. That current is still moving forward. And never forget that we have the power that we have. Because every power that any man has ever had is something that a woman gave to him. And we can always stop. Kat, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. go to doctors and we do so with trust and blind faith that the tests they are ordering and the medications they're prescribing are based upon evidence evidence that's designed to help us however the reality is that that hasn't always been the case for everyone What if I told you that the medical science discovered over the past century has been based on only half the population? I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I was trained to be prepared in a medical emergency. It's about saving lives. How cool is that? Okay, there's a lot of runny noses and stubbed toes, but no matter who walks through the door to the ER, we order the same tests. We prescribe the same medication without ever thinking about the sex or gender of our patients. Part of tearing down the patriarchy is understanding our mothers, not directly, but our evolutionary mothers, the Eve's cat talks about in her work. How easy It is for our society to ignore us when they haven't taken or won't take the time to understand the power of our bodies, of our essential nature, of how we make them who they are and have from the very beginning of our evolutionary history. Women are superheroes designed to survive, to fight back against all that nature can throw at the human species and come out ahead Me personally, I wouldn't look at that history and decide to keep fucking around with women. The find out stage will come sooner rather than later. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.